introduction, my dear friend and distinguished friend, Dr. Will Storr. It's a great privilege to be back here at CTI, to be at Princeton, to have a chance to enjoy this fabulous weather. Who's ever in charge of the weather deserves a raise. And to have a chance to interact again with this wonderful community. I want to thank all of you for coming out. I want to thank Will and his colleagues uh, for their kind hospitality. Josh Malden and Jade in particular, who have done a lot of work behind the scenes. Often not recognized, but it's the staff that make these things work. And I'm deeply grateful for their hospitality. It's a little bit intimidating, though, for a mere law professor to be standing before a distinguished theological audience to talk to you about Martin Luther. Because as some of you know, Luther was not very nice to lawyers. <laughs> and in one of, or two of his table talks early on, when he was two or three beers into an evening, uh, he had some rather choice things to say about lawyers that still sting uh, half a millennium later. Here are just a few of them, and there are many more that you could find in his tishrays. Jurists are bad Christians. Of the gospel, lawyers know nothing. Every jurist is an enemy of Christ. <laughs> lawyers are agents of hell and the devil. We theologians have no worse enemies than jurists. There is eternal strife and enmity between theology faculties and law faculties. A jurist should not speak until he hears a pig fart. <laughs> For only then will his words have a proper climate to be appreciated. And then more scatological still, I blank. Four-letter word begins with S and ends with T. I blank on the law of the Pope, on the law of the Emperor, and especially on the law of the jurists. <laughs> so I have my work cut out for me this evening. I see a few members of the Lutheran cloth in our midst. They may have some choice words about me in due course as well. On December 10, 1520, Martin Luther burned the canon law books of the Catholic Church. A large group of his students and colleagues gathered in Wittenberg for the book burning. Consigned to the flames were Gratian's Decretum of 1140 and four thick books of later papal laws. Also cast into the fire were a standard confessional book and several tomes of medieval Catholic sacramental theology. This might as well go into Luther muttered as he threw into the fire the papal bull that threatened his excommunication for heresy. Luther would later write of his canonical bonfire, I am more pleased with this than any other action in my life. If there were a single event that signaled Luther's permanent break with Rome, this was the event. Three years before, Luther had posted his 95 Theses, and there he had attacked the church's crass commercialization of salvation through the sale of indulgences. There he had ridiculed the sales pitch of the faith peddlers. The moment your coin clinks into the bottom of my chest, the soul of your loved one will fly to heavenly rest. In several publications and lectures over the next two years, Luther had challenged with increasing stridency the biblical integrity of the church's theology of sin, salvation, and the sacraments. In July 1519, he had engaged in a sensational public debate at the University of Leipzig with Catholic Huber theologian Johann Eck. In response, Pope Leo X had issued his bull of excommunication. 
Arise, O Lord, a wild boar has invaded your vineyard. Leo began in his bowl. And Leo went on in purplish prose to condemn the piggish Martin Luther and his teachings as heretical, scandalous, offensive, seductive, and repugnant to God's Catholic truth, quote unquote. The Pope had given Luther 60 days after receipt to recant, to repent, and to return quietly to the Catholic fold. December 10, 1520 was the 60th day. On that day, Luther had his legal bonfire in Wittenberg, burning his last bridge with Rome. Luther based his attack on a radical new theology of freedom, freedom of the church from the tyranny of the Pope, freedom of the laity from the hegemony of the clergy, freedom of the conscience from the strictures of canon law. Freedom of the Christian was the rallying cry of the early Lutheran Reformation, and it drove theologians and jurists, clergy and laity, princes and peasants alike, to denounce the church's legal strictures and structures with unprecedented alacrity. One by one, the structures of the church were thrust into the glaring light of the word of God and forced to show their true colors. Few church structures survived this strict scrutiny in the heady days of the 1520s. The church's canon law books were burned, church courts were closed, monasteries were confiscated, benefices were dissolved, church properties were seized, clerical privileges were stripped, mendicant begging was banned, Mandatory celibacy was suspended. Indulgence trafficking ended. Taxes to Rome were outlawed. Ties to the papacy were severed. The German people were now to live by the pure light of the word of God and the simple law of the local community. Though such attacks built on two centuries of reformist agitation in the West, it was especially Luther's theological teachings that ignited this movement in Germany and eventually Scandinavia as well. Salvation comes through faith in the gospel, Luther taught, not through works of the law. All persons stand directly before God. They're not dependent upon clerics for divine mediation. All believers are priests to their peers. They're not divided into a higher clergy and lower laity. All persons are called by God to serve in vocations. Clerics are not the only ones with a Christian calling. The church is a communion of saints, not a corporation of law. The consciences of its members are to be guided by the Bible, not governed by human traditions. The church is called to serve society in love, not to rule it by law. Law is the province of the magistrate, not the prerogative of the cleric. When put in such raw, and radical terms. These theological teachings were highly volatile compounds. When sparked by Luther's pugnacious rhetoric and relentless publication program, they set off a whole series of explosive reform movements in various parts of Germany and Scandinavia and eventually their colonies as well. In these early years, Luther's attack sometimes broadened into an attack on human law and authority altogether. He wrote famously in 1520, neither pope nor bishop nor any other man has the right to impose a single syllable of a law on a Christian man without his consent. The Bible, says Luther, contains all that's needed for proper Christian living. To subtract from the law of the Bible is blasphemy. To add to the law of the Bible 
is tyranny. Wise rulers, said Luther, side by side with Holy Scripture, are law enough. When jurists of the day objected that such radical biblicism was itself a recipe for blasphemy and tyranny, Luther turned on them harshly, unleashing all of those choice expletives about the legal profession with which he began. If you want to hear a few more, stay for the break. <laughs> the rapid deconstruction of law, politics, and society that followed upon such shrill rhetoric plunged Germany into an acute crisis in the 1520s and 30s. Luther had drawn too sharp a contrast between freedom and order, spirit and structure within the church. Young Lutheran churches and clerics were treating their new liberty as license for all manner of doctrinal and liturgical experimentation and laxness. Widespread confusion reigned over preaching and prayers and pastoral duties. Church attendance, tithe payments, and charitable offerings declined abruptly amongst many who took Luther's teachings of free grace rather too literally. Many radical social experiments were engineered out of Luther's favorite doctrines of the priesthood of all believers and justification by faith alone. It was like Woodstock, and the hippie days of the 1960s had come four centuries too early. Moreover, Luther had driven too deep a wedge between the canon law of the church and the civil law of the state. Many subjects and persons traditionally governed by the church's canon law and the vast clerical and monastic bureaucracies that had gathered in the legal system now remained without effective legal guidance. The vast church properties that local magistrates had confiscated were disappearing rapidly into private hands. Drunkenness, usury, and vagabondage reached new heights. Crime, delinquency, and mendicancy soared. Marriage, divorce, and inheritance became hopelessly confused. Schools, charities, and hospitals were closing down in record numbers. Widows, orphans, and the poor were literally dying in the streets. All these subjects, and many more, the Catholic canon law and attendant church institutions and bureaucracies had governed in detail for centuries before this new Protestant civil law, where it existed at all, was far too primitive to deal with these subjects properly. In response, the Lutheran Reformation of theology and the church quickly broadened into a reformation of law and the state as well. Deconstruction of the canon law for the sake of the gospel gave way to reconstruction of the civil law on the strength of the gospel. Castigation of Catholic clerics as self-serving overlords gave way to cultivation of Christian Protestant magistrates as fathers of the community called to govern on God's behalf. In the 1530s and thereafter, Lutheran theologians began to pay much closer attention to the legal, political, and social implications of their radical new theological teachings. And they joined an impressive array of Lutheran jurists to craft ambitious legal reforms of church, state, and society. These legal reforms were captured in hundreds of new legal tomes and in hundreds of new Reformation ordinances that were promulgated in the first two-thirds of the 16th century in Germany and then eventually in Scandinavia as well. 
critics of the day and ever since have regarded this legal turn of the Reformation as a corruption of the original Lutheran message. For some, it was a bitter betrayal of the new freedom and equality that Luther had promised. For others, it was a distortion of Luther's fundamental reforms of theology and the church. For still others, it was simply a reversion to Catholic norms, now dressed up in new Protestant form. Whatever the merits of such criticisms, in Luther's day at least, it was the combination of theological and legal reforms that rendered the Lutheran Reformation so resolute and so resilient. The reality was that Luther and the theologians needed the law and the jurists, however much they initially scorned them and repeatedly defamed them. It was one thing to deconstruct the legal framework of medieval Catholicism with the sharp theological sword alone. It was quite another thing to try to reconstruct a new Lutheran framework of law, politics, and society with only this theological sword in hand. Luther learned this lesson the hard way in the crisis years of the 1520s and 30s, and it almost destroyed him and his movement. He quickly came to realize that law was not just a necessary evil, but an essential blessing of earthly life. It was thus both natural and necessary for the Lutheran Reformation to move from theology to law. Radical theological reforms had made possible fundamental legal reforms, and fundamental legal reforms in turn would make permanent the radical theological reforms that had been put in place. The Lutheran Reformation became, in essence, both a theological and a legal reform movement. It struck new balances between law and gospel, order and faith, structure and spirit, and it offered new theories and new laws of church and state, marriage and education, social welfare and charity, and other topics that had become the permanent legacy of the Lutheran Reformation for the Western tradition. The starting point for this combined theological and legal reform movement was Luther's complex theory of the two kingdoms, which I'm going to grossly simplify. This theory came together in Luther's mind in the 1520s and 30s and became a dominant gene in the theological genetic code of Lutheran theology and jurisprudence thereafter. God has ordained two kingdoms, or realms, in which humanity is destined to live, Luther argued, the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. The earthly kingdom is the realm of creation, of natural and civil life, where a person operates primarily by reason and law. The heavenly kingdom is the realm of redemption, of spiritual and eternal life, where a person operates primarily by faith and by love. These two kingdoms embrace parallel, spiritual and temporal forms of righteousness and justice, government and order, truth and knowledge. But these two kingdoms ultimately remain distinct. The earthly kingdom is distorted by sin and governed by the law. The heavenly kingdom is renewed by grace and guided by the gospel. A Christian is perforce a citizen of both kingdoms at once and invariably comes under the distinctive governments of each. As a heavenly citizen, the Christian remains free in his or her conscience, called to live fully by the light of 
the gospel alone. But as an earthly citizen, the Christian is bound by law and called to obey the natural orders and offices that God has ordained. Luther's two kingdoms theory was a rejection of traditional hierarchical theories of being, society, and authority. For centuries, the church had taught that God's creation was hierarchical in structure, a vast chain of being emanating from God and descending through various layers and levels of realities down to the smallest particular. In this great chain of being, each creature found its place and its purpose, and each human institution and society found its natural order and hierarchy. It was thus simply the nature of things that some persons and institutions were higher on this chain of being, some lower. It was the nature of things that some were closer and had more ready access to God, and some were further away and in need of greater mediation in their relationship to God. This chain of being theory, which some of you will recognize at work in Dante's Divine Comedy, amongst others, was one basis for traditional Catholic arguments for the superiority of the Pope to the Emperor, of the canon law to the civil law of the Church to the state. Luther's two kingdoms theory turned this traditional ontology onto its side. By distinguishing the two kingdoms, Luther highlighted a radical separation between God and humanity. For Luther, the fall into sin destroyed the original continuity and communion between the creator and creation. There is no chain of being descending from God, said Luther. There is no stairway of merit ascending to God. Persons are born into the earthly kingdom and have access to the heavenly kingdom only through faith in God's grace. Luther did not deny the traditional view that the earthly kingdom retained its natural order despite the fall into sin. There remained, in effect, a chain of being, an order in creation that gave each human being and each institution its proper place and purpose in this life. But for Luther, this chain of being was horizontal, not hierarchical. Before God, all persons and all earthly institutions were by nature equal, said Luther. Luther's earthly kingdom was a flat regime, a horizontal realm of being, with no person and no institution obstructed or mediated by any other in relationship to and in accountability before God. Luther's two kingdoms theory also turned the traditional hierarchical theory of human society onto its side. For centuries, the Catholic Church had taught that the clergy were called to a higher spiritual service in the realm of grace, the laity to a lower temporal service in the realm of nature. The clergy were accordingly exempt from many earthly activities and obligations, such as marriage and warfare and guard duty and tax payments and prosecution for crimes, benefit of clergy protecting them. Luther rejected all of this. For him, clergy and laity were both part of the earthly kingdom and were both presumptively equal before God and before all others. Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers at once laicized the clergy and clericized the laity. 
Luther treated the traditional clerical office of preaching and teaching as just one other good vocation alongside many others <coughs> that a conscientious Christian could properly and freely pursue in this life. He treated all traditional lay offices in turn as forms of divine calling and priestly vocation, each providing unique opportunities for service to God, neighbor, and self. Preachers and teachers of the church, he insisted, just like butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, must carry their share of civic duties, pay their share of civic taxes, participate as actively as they can in marriage and family life, and discharge all the earthly activities that everybody else must discharge. And finally, Luther's two kingdoms theory turned the traditional hierarchical theory of authority onto its side. Luther rejected the medieval two swords theory that regarded the cleric and the canon law to be naturally superior to the magistrate and the civil law. In Luther's view, God has ordained three forms and forums of authority for governance of this earthly life, the family, the church, and the state. All three of these natural offices are ordained directly by God. All three represent different dimensions of God's presence and authority in the earthly kingdom. All stand equal before God and before each other in discharging their core natural callings. Of these three estates, said Luther, only the state has formal legal authority, the coercive authority of the sword to pass and enforce human laws for the governance of the earthly kingdom. The church is not a lawmaking authority. It has no sword. It has no business involving itself in daily legal and political life. Its cardinal callings and signs are to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, to care for the poor and needy, to catechize the young. The church must, said Luther, remain separate and distinct from the state in its makeup, ministry, and mission. Indeed, Luther quoted Ephesians 2.14 to say there must be, quote, a wall of separation between church and state. Luther was more concerned with the form, fun function than the form of the state. Every magistrate, he wrote, from the highest king down to the pettiest judge, is God's vice-regent and the earthly kingdom called to elaborate and enforce God's word and will, to reflect God's justice and mercy, to appropriate and apply God's natural law and human positive laws. Every magistrate is also God's instrument of judgment and wrath against human sin, said Luther. Princes and magistrates are the bows and arrows of God, he wrote, licensed to hunt down God's enemies. The hand of the Christian magistrate, judge, or soldier that wields the sword and slays in a just cause is not man's hand, but God's. And every magistrate, Luther said, is the father of the community, the pater politicus. The pater politicus is called to care for his political subjects as if they are his children, and his political subjects are to honor and obey him as if he is their parent. Like a loving father, the magistrate must keep the peace and protect his subjects and their persons and properties and reputations. He must deter his subjects from abusing themselves through drunkenness or prostitution or gambling or other vices. He must maintain his subjects through the community chest 
the public almshouse, the public hospital. He must educate them through the public school, the public library, the public lectern. He must see to their spiritual needs by supporting the ministry of the locally established church and encouraging attendance and participation in worship and Sabbath observance and tithing and holy events. And he must set a pristine example of virtue and piety in his own life for his faithful subjects to see and to emulate. These twin metaphors of the Christian magistrate as the lofty vice-regent of God and as the loving father of the local community describe the basics of Lutheran political theory for the next three centuries. For Luther, the state is divine in origin but earthly in operation. It expresses God's harsh judgment against sin but also God's tender mercy for sinners. It communicates the law of God but also the lore of the local community. The state depends upon the church for prophetic direction, but removes from the church all jurisdiction. Either metaphor, standing alone, could be a recipe for abusive tyranny or officious paternalism. But both metaphors together provided Luther and his followers with the core ingredients of a robust Christian republicanism and a budding Christian welfare state. This new Lutheran political theory was reflected in hundreds of comprehensive new state civil laws that replaced traditional church laws in early modern Germany and Scandinavia. We have about 95 of these massive folio volumes of ordinances that were passed between 1520 and 1575 for the German portions of the empire and the first parts of the Swedish empire. And Denmark. Luther himself and many of the first generation of reformers were in the business of crafting these ordinances and they cover a range of new topics. A large number of laws deal with religious establishment norms defining the and governing the polity, the property, the clergy, the activities of the church and the attendant activities of the members of that church. A large body of laws dealt with public morality, taking issues that historically were dealt with by the sacrament of penance and now making them part of the misdemeanor and felony convictions that attach to life in one of these established Lutheran polities. A large number of new laws now govern marriage and family life. Historically, a sacrament of the Catholic Church now made a social estate of earthly life and with new rules in place for marriage formation, maintenance, and dissolution, introducing a much simpler system designed to create the freedom to enter a marriage and, if necessary, the freedom to exit a marriage and remarry thereafter. New protections put in place for children and for widows and for wives, a strong new ethic of the importance of the marital family as an organizing principle of a organized society. Vast new laws on education, the introduction of the public school, mandatory school attendance for boys and girls, participating in the acquisition of literacy, learning the skills and the discerning the callings that they have to discharge their particular vocation in life. A whole new variety of forms of charity and social welfare at the local level, with new ordinances 
driven by, on the one hand, seeking to make the state responsible for the members of the community that were deserving of care, and in turn encouraging philanthropy in citizens. And then an array of new criminal laws, seeking to formulate a way of addressing the realities of sin and crime in the community, but without resort to torture, and in turn, a deliberate attempt to put in place forms of rehabilitation alongside retribution. Here, the pedagogical use of the law put into operation directly in the way one thinks about punishment. There's a lot to say about that. If you're interested, I might recommend a book written by my wife's husband <laughs> called Law and Protestantism, The Legal Teachings of the Lutheran Reformation. $29.95 on Amazon.com <laughs> and best enjoyed with a lovely cabernet. <laughs> Half a millennium after it first broke out in the little town of Wittenberg, the Lutheran Reformation still has a shaping influence on Western theology, law, and culture on both sides of the Atlantic and increasingly also is deeply influential in the Christian global south. It's worth recounting the familiar but fundamental changes to German theology and church life born of the Reformation. The Lutheran Reformation radically resystematized dogma. It truncated the sacraments. It revamped spiritual symbolism. It vernacularized the Bible and the worship service. It transformed corporate worship and congregational music. It gave new emphasis to the pulpit and the sermon. It expanded catechesis and religious instruction. It truncated clerical privileges and church properties. It dissolved ecclesiastical foundations and endowments. It outlawed pilgrimages and the cult of religious artifacts. It rejected the veneration of non-biblical saints and the cult of the dead. It outlawed the payment of indulgences and mortuaries. It reduced the number of holy days. It lightened spiritual rules of diet and dress. It reformed ecclesiastical discipline and church administration, and much, much more. A leaner, a cleaner, a more participatory, a more egalitarian, and a vernacularized church emerged as a consequence. This theological transformation as one of the Reformation's greatest cultural legacies to the world. Lutheran and other churches around the world today still hold firmly to many of the cardinal theological teachings of the Lutheran Reformation. Justification by faith alone, sola scriptura, the priesthood of all believers, law and gospel, sinner and saint. The great Lutheran catechisms, confessions, and creeds forged in the Reformation era ring with as much power for Christians today as they did for Lutherans in the 1520s and 1530s. The majestic hymns that Luther crafted still lift the rafters of many modern Protestant worship services. The art and the woodcuts that Luther inspired still bring gasps to many modern museum patrons. The Lutheran masterpieces of Johann Sebastian Bach and his sons are preludes to the music of heaven. The timeless language and phraseology of Luther's German Bible and German Mass captures the imagination of a modern-day German as much as 
the magisterial language of King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer captures the imagination of a modern English speaker. A good deal of our modern Western law and politics also still bear the unmistakable marks of the Lutheran Reformation and its early theological teachings. Today, in every Western legal system and in international human rights instruments as well, we protect the freedom of conscience for which Luther had risked his life, and we have placed his understanding of that of others of religious freedom and human dignity, liberty, equality, at the cornerstones of our Western constitutional systems. Today, in most Western legal systems, marriage is still viewed as both a civil and a spiritual institution, at least in some communities, as Luther had taught, whose formation and maintenance require special legal procedures administered by the state. Parents must still consent to the marriages of their minor children. Peers must still attest to the veracity of the marital oath. Pastors or political officials must still confirm the marital union, if not consecrated. Divorce and annulment still require special public proceedings before a tribunal with proof of support for dependent spouses and children. All this was part of Luther's original vision. Today, in most Western legal systems, basic education remains a fundamental right of the citizen to procure and a fundamental duty of the state to provide. Literacy and learning are still considered a prerequisite for individual flourishing and political participation. Society still places a heavy burden on those who shirk education voluntarily. The state is still considered to be the essential monitor of civil education, which task it discharges directly through its own public or common schools or indirectly through its accreditation and supervision of private schools. Here, too, Luther's original vision and that of his running mate, Philip Melanchthon, is alive and well. Today, in most Western legal systems, care for the poor and needy <coughs> remain an essential office of the state and an essential calling of the citizen. The rise of the modern welfare state over the past century is in no small measure a new institutional expression of the Lutheran ideal of the magistrate as the father of the community, called to care for all of his political children, and the concurrent rise of the modern philanthropic citizen is in no small measure a modern institutional expression of Luther's ideal of the priesthood of all believers, each giving loving service to his or her neighbors. A good deal of our modern struggle with law, however, is also part of the legal legacy of the Lutheran Reformation. For example, the Lutheran reformers removed the church as the spiritual ruler of Germany, an expression of their founding ideals of religious liberty but they ultimately anointed the state as the new spiritual ruler of Germany, an expression of their new doctrines of Christian republicanism. Ever since, Germany and other Protestant nations have been locked in a bitter legal struggle to eradicate state establishments of religion and to guarantee religious freedom for all. The Lutheran 
reformers removed the Pope as a rapacious tyrant as they saw him, who in their view impugned the Christian conscience, fleeced the sheep of Christendom, and reduced the laity to quivering obedience for fear of losing their eternal life. But the Lutheran reformers ultimately anointed the prince as the lofty new vice-regent of God on earth, imposing too few constitutional safeguards against his tyrannical excesses and imparting too few intellectual resources to support civil disobedience, let alone political rebellion. The Lutheran reformers removed clerics as mediators between God and the laity, an expression of St. Peter's teaching of the priesthood of all believers. But they ultimately interposed husbands between God and their wives, an expression of St. Paul's teaching of male headship. The Lutheran reformers were outlawed monasteries and cloisters, arguing that they were a betrayal of the goods of marriage that God had put in place in the created order. But these reforms also ended the vocations of many single women, placing a new premium on the vocation of marriage, a new stigma on the spinster. Ever since, Protestant women have been locked in a bitter legal struggle to gain fundamental equality, both within the marital household and without, a struggle that has still not ended in more conservative Protestant communities today. Luther's legal legacy, therefore, should be neither unduly romanticized nor unduly condemned. Those who champion Luther as the father of liberty, equality, and fraternity might do well to remember his ample penchant for elitism, statism, and chauvinism. Those who see the reformers only as belligerent allies of repression and abuse should recognize that they were also creative agents of education and welfare. Prone as he was to dialectical reasoning, and aware as he was of the inherent vices and virtues of human achievements, Luther would likely have reached a comparable assessment. Such circumspection becomes doubly imperative in drawing connections between 16th century Lutheranism and 20th century Nazism. Any serious discussion of the cultural legacy of the Reformation has to take this grim topic in view. And it's, of course, tempting to follow many modern critics who draw direct and easy causal lines from Luther to Hitler, from Luther's horrible 1543 sermon on the Jews and their lies, to Hitler's horrible slaughter of the Jews in the ghettos and death camps 400 years later. Such unfathomable tragedies as the Holocaust demand villains to become a bit understandable. And so giant a German personality as Luther is a natural and easy target to single out. But we need remind ourselves of elementary facts and elementary law before drawing this indictment. The elementary facts are that Luther's late life railings against the Jews were quite in contrast to his earlier solicitude for the Jews and quite in keeping with a millennium and a half of vicious anti-Semitism in the Christian tradition. 
Luther certainly added his ample share of vitriol to this Christian tradition of anti-Semitism, and for that he deserves ample condemnation, doubly so since he knew his words would influence his followers. But Luther's words were not as harsh as those of many other Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox Christians before and after him, who condemned the Jews and called for all manner of savage abuses against them. And Luther did not act on his words in a way that many Christians before him had done and after him would do in their many brutal campaigns of persecution, ghettoization, pogrization, ostracism, and just plain rape and slaughter of the Jews. To indict Luther for the horrors of the Holocaust is not only to strain elementary facts, but also to strain elementary law. A conviction for unjustified homicide requires proof of a clear causal chain between a defendant's culpable action and the victim's ultimate death. The defendant's action must be the cause, in fact, of the victim's death, an act without which deaths would not have occurred. The defendant's conduct must also be the proximate cause of the victim's deaths, close enough in time and space and foreseeability without intervening conduct by third parties that break the causal chain. It is unquestionable that Luther's late-life railings against the Jews were a link in the chain of causation that ultimately brought on the Holocaust. But it was only one link in a causal chain of many thousands of links, and very far removed in time, space, and foreseeability from the actual horrors of the Holocaust. I do not pass this judgment lightly. My family suffered massive losses of life and of dignity during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. And my surviving parents and aunts and uncles carried deep scars on their bodies, minds, and souls from the savagery and theft and rape and kidnapping and deprivation that were visited on them in those long years of Nazi occupation. Perhaps the statutory period on genocide, unlike that of homicide, should be infinite, not limited. Perhaps long chains of causation should be used to hang in memory, not to exonerate in casuistry all those Christian hate mongers against the Jews, however distant in time and cause from the actual events of the Holocaust. Perhaps the Council of Emotion is better than the Council of Law to deal with so evil a tragedy. Perhaps so. But for all of his rhetorical braggadocio, there was a lot of it, I think Luther would have been as horrified as any of us to see what the Holocaust had wrought. In the hundred plus, plus thick volumes of his writings that we have before us, there is precious little to indicate that he would have condoned diabolical savagery of this proportion. Luther did know great political evil in his day, albeit nothing on the scale of the Holocaust. Indeed, it was in response to that evil that he crafted his greatest hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. His words in this hymn capture many of the cardinal convictions at the core of his dialectical theology. 
A contrast between Satan and Christ, body and soul, works and faith, folly and truth, despair and hope, death and life, the mortality of the earthly kingdom and the eternity of the heavenly kingdom. His words in this hymn also capture Luther's abiding faith that God and his word ultimately <coughs> remain in charge of both kingdoms, even if the devil and his human minions temporarily vie for power in the earthly kingdom. This song is perhaps his best offering to respond to some of the failings of his own reformation and some of the failings of his later followers. I'll spare you my singing, but the poetry at work in this song is moving enough as a conclusion. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has will, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall tell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sided. Let goods and kindred go, the mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom 